Without any introduction, I want to jump right into this psalm. If you are the kind of person who likes outlines, we're starting this outline, uh, this point right with the title of the psalm, namely, The Embittered Soul. Our psalmist, Asaph, he has a problem. Uh, All is not well with his soul. We sometimes sing together the great hymn, It is well with my soul. Well, for Asaph, that is not the case. All is not well with his heart. And this psalm is about the state of the heart. Heart is referred to six or so times throughout this psalm. And you can see it painfully when he says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. These things are personal to him. They run deep into the very essence of his being as he's considering, as he's wrestling through these various issues. His soul, his heart, his innermost being, all of those things networked together. And the Psalms and the psalmists then draw out wisely the deep waters of our heart. And, and as they do that, what we find much like what Asaph finds as he goes through the process in this psalm, is that the reality is our hearts are convoluted. They are serpentine things. Thoughts and bitterness lurks in corners of them, and we're not even aware of the fact that our soul is full of potentially deadly poisons and toxins that are dwelling inside of us. The Scriptures warn us, right? The Scriptures warn us clearly against things like bitterness and jealousy and envy. Paul says, for example, let those not even be among you. Get those away from you. The writer of Hebrews, quoting Moses, warns us and says, don't let any root of bitterness spring up inside of you. And the reason that he says it is that it's a deadly poison for our souls. So a a, a dictionary definition of bitterness, the psalmist's heart is bitter, his soul is bitter. Bitterness, anger, hurt, or resentment because of one's bad experiences or sense of unjust treatment. Bitterness can come into our hearts in any number of ways, any number of angles. We're going to trace the particular bitterness that is in the heart of the psalmist in this particular psalm, but it can come through the bad things that we experience in life or even our perception of bad things. Perhaps it's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it's our perception of that as a bad thing, or in the case of this psalmist, our perception of what somebody else has that we don't actually possess ourselves. Now, uh, in Hebrew, the, the terms for something that is bitter and something that is sour are fairly fluid. Uh, it's hard for us to discern exactly between the two of them. So bitterness or sourness is, of course, a a physical experience. We can understand what the taste of bitterness is. You can go home this afternoon and give your uh, kids some bitter chocolate and let them know what the taste of bitterness is, how it is not a sweet thing. 
And it's advantageous for us to have something that is concrete, that is physical, that is a taste we can get a sense of, and then say that same thing can take place in our soul. That's what bitterness in the soul is like. Praise God for a psalmist, Asaph in this case, who is willing to, uh, to strip his heart for us, to bear his soul for us, and to show us what bitterness will do to a person and where does bitterness come from. And of course, the place where it comes from in this psalm, bitterness arises out of envy. Verse 3 says, For I was envious of the arrogant. No one is immune to this. Not one person in this room is immune to envy, to wanting what someone else has, whether it's a physical characteristic, uh, an emotional stability, a family issue, a station in life, certain friends, certain gifts. No one is immune to the sin of envy and to the potential of bitterness that can then exist in our soul. So if point one is to allow the psalmist here to identify for us the idea of an embittered soul, point number two is to trace along with this psalmist the struggle of an embittered soul. How did that soul get to that place? And what does he try to do in the midst of this bitterness? Now, I suspect, for those of you who are familiar with Scripture, that you, like me, love the end of this psalm, right? There are some verses at the end of this psalm about the nearness of God, about God having hold of us, that are amongst some of the very most precious verses in all of the Word of God. But you can't skip to the end. This psalm, those conclusions come out of the context of a deep wrestling and struggle that is unavoidable. You can't just have the end, you have to have the struggle to appreciate what comes at the end of this psalm. You've got to wrestle and walk along with him in this no hards, no holds barred, Jacob-esque wrestling match with the soul and with God. So I want to trace then along in the psalm how the thought progresses as it wrestles its way through here. We begin exactly where the psalm begins with what is the most apparent simple truth that you learn in Sunday school about God. This is, I, I think, it was for me at least when I was a kid, like Sunday school lesson number one or even if it wasn't taught in Sunday school because I was never paying attention in Sunday school, it was just something I knew from family prayers, from other things. God is good. That's where it starts. God is good. He is good in particular. God is good to Israel, His chosen people, the people upon whom He has set His name. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to Israel, the people whom He has chosen, those who are pure in heart, those are, who are loyal to Him. Just, just think about this for a moment. How many times, today included, have we started our worship service with a call to worship that includes the phrase, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. It's all over the place. We say it together all the time. And the idea of the pure in heart is as common to us as the Sermon on the Mount, as the Beatitudes that Jesus gives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the verse that is on the front of your bulletin this morning. The Psalms, the book of the Psalms, open with this basic premise in Psalm 1. God blesses the righteous, but the wicked and the way of the wicked will perish. Very simple truth that is set out right for us at the beginning of the Psalter. But Asaph throws down a challenge, a gauntlet, right at the outset. A word isn't out of the mouth, God is good, before Asaph says, prove it. You say God is good? All right, let's put it to the test. Now, I know some of us have different characters. This is exactly what I would have said in Sunday school. You prove it to me. You show me that, in fact, this is true because here's the reality. It sure doesn't seem this way. Asaph has been around the block. He's seen life. He's observed the world. And this is his observational, his empirical conclusion. The wicked are doing pretty well. They have nice cars. They have nice houses. They uh, take great vacations. They get TV shows that are made about them. The secret lives of the super rich. And apparently all of it is without consequence. They seem to be at ease. They seem to be increasing in riches. And it would be one thing if we always saw a fall at the end of the story. If we always saw the end and we saw these people die or lose everything, and every once in a while you can watch those TV shows too, um, and see that, that they get their comeuppance. They get what they deserve at some point. But Asaph says, maybe that's true sometimes, but it's not true all the time. Because in my observation, a lot of the rich and a lot of the wicked even die fat and happy, fat and sleek, which seem to be opposites as we consider them in our modern uh, language. But fat, they have this sense of, of more than they need. Asaph, on the other hand, comparing himself to them, feels like, and teens, I want you to listen to this in particular, Asaph feels like he has been gypped. He's been cheated. He's gone through life, and in going through life, he has jumped through all of the hoops of the Jewish faith. He comes to church every Sunday. Sometimes he comes to church on Sunday nights, Saturday for him. And he goes to Sunday school classes, and he does what the teachers tell him to do. So he, now for him, he wrote songs, but he sings songs, he remembers the songs, 
He memorizes scripture passages, he memorizes catechism lessons, and he does his work as best as he can. He tries to do the right thing and avoid doing the wrong thing. And he has a question, for what? What's the point? What do I get out of this? Well, here's the empirical conclusion of what he gets out of this, found in verse 13 and 14. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent, innocence, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I am tired, I am abused, I have nothing to show for a life of godliness. There are other things to be doing in life and on a Sunday. There are other things your parents could be doing with their money instead of tithing to the church. They could be buying things for you. You could be playing club soccer, club lacrosse, club hockey right now. You could be doing other things that are more beneficial, they're more fun. And Asaph says, in vain have I done all this stuff. It'd be one thing if my friends got punished somehow, if I could see the results of them doing wrong things, but I don't. They just look fine, and I'm miserable. And that's the attitude that Asaph has in this particular psalm. And so his preliminary conclusion is this, Psalm 1 is wrong. The wicked are blessed. In fact, in the verse here where it says, I was envious, verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Prosperity is a great word. It makes good sense to us in English. In Hebrew, it's one you'll recognize. When I saw the shalom of the wicked. Shalom of the wicked. That should, that's, that's peace, wholeness, wellness. That's, that's the word that should belong to the covenant people of God. How dare you put the covenant word on top of the wicked? But that's what he says. That's my conclusion. Psalm 1 is wrong. The wicked are blessed while the righteous perish. And I want to be like them. It's not just an observation. It's a desire. I want that life. I want those toys. I want that freedom. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it guilt-free. I don't want to be concerned about what other people think. I don't want to be concerned about asking what the right thing is. I just want to do what I want to do, conscience clear. Because it doesn't make any difference whether or not I am pure in heart. This is no disinterested research paper poem that is written for us here. He wants it bad. But for him, the struggle isn't over when he just thinks about what he wants. Verse 15, if I, had, if, I, if I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, in his consideration of what he wants, he does this whole personal examination of things, and then he says, yes, but I'm going I'm to personalize this for me. You personalize it for you. Fill in your names. Yes, but I've got to think about Lauren and Nate and Danny, and Tim, and McKella, and a child to come, and I've got to think about Signorinos, and I've got to think about Stalls, and I've got to think about Buchanan's, and I've got to think about Andersons and Keens. 
I've got to think about the other generations. I need to consider other people. But even so, even so, even as he considers those things and says, I can't ditch this because there are other people around, nevertheless, it is still not easy for him, as is apparent to us as he continues on in verse 16. But when I thought to excuse me, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I tried to make sense of it, but it was exhausting. It is incomprehensible to me to look at how successful they are and then compare them to me. I can't make it make sense. He could not reason his way out of this conclusion. He compares what he knows about the Bible, he compares what he knows about the wicked, and he says, I can't make those two things jive with one another. It's wearisome to me. He couldn't think his way unto a restful soul. And so, and this is my sanctified imagination of what takes place here, so in the midst of that struggle, He looks at his watch, and he realizes, it's time for worship again. I've got to go. My job is at the sanctuary. I can think all of this stuff. I can be frustrated about all of it, but choir practice. I've got to go lead people, train people. I've got to go back to the sanctuary. I've got to go back to the temple, to the tabernacle, whatever time particular this is written in. And so he trudges off, back to church, begrudgingly, tired, confused. He goes out of habit. He goes out of routine. He goes because somebody's telling him he's got to go and he's got to be there at a particular time. He drags himself to church, as pointless as it may seem to him. And lo and behold, what reason, even biblical reasoning, and that's what he's trying to do, observation and consideration failed to do for him, worship does for him. He couldn't reason it out. He couldn't theologize his way out of it. But worship reorients him. He moves from disorientation to orientation. Willem van Gemmeren quotes Walter Brueggemann, noting this psalm is the tale of a heart seduced and then healed. The heart is wooed. It's wooed by what it sees, the niceties of the riches. He goes to the sanctuary. Until, verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God, where what he experiences at the sanctuary, if we can put it in one word, what he experiences at the sanctuary is presence. The presence of God, the concentrated presence of the omnipresent God in this place. There's beauty, there's order, there's craftsmanship, there's precious materials. Remember all of these things we talked about when we were in Exodus talking about the tabernacle? There's divisions, there's curtains, there's incense, but there's blood and there's death 
There's life, and there's people praying, and there's people singing. There's priests. Now, if we substitute one word for presence, what he experiences when he goes to the sanctuary is glory. How about this? How about just putting it together? Glorious presence is what he experiences when he goes to that place, a taste of heaven on earth. Now, let's fuse this with our own experience here. Let's, let's bridge the gap between him, old covenant worship, new covenant worship. What he experiences when he goes to church is he sees the cross. And in the cross, he knows of the suffering, of the blood, of the death of the Son of God. And what he hears is the good news of the resurrection of the Son of God. What he hears is that which you said in the very call to worship, the Lord reigns, our God reigns, and in particular, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, reigns, lives, exalted. And what he experiences when he comes to church is the place wherein the Holy Spirit is pleased to outpour himself. outpour the very presence of God and assure us of the presence of God in our midst as Father, your Father, the one to whom you can come in prayer, the one who gives us hope, the one who has us by the right hand and will not let us go. What he sees is that ultimately in the courts of God, justice and mercy are perfectly distributed by God. The wicked will perish. As the animals are slain, as the Son of God was slain for sin, the wicked will perish for their sin. Their blood will be spilled. Sometimes we see it in this life. But even if we don't, the assurance of Scripture is God has got that covered. Their apparent prosperity is a grand illusion. It is a false facade, a house of cards, and it will crumble. It will not stand the testing on the last day. But for Asaph, for the godly, for the pure in heart, for those called out to be his, glory is their inheritance, the glory of God himself, the presence of God himself. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. That's where I'm destined. That's where you're destined. That's where we're going. And when you come into this place, as many other things as we may hear, it ought to be the assurance that you are bound for the glory and the presence of God. Asaph experiences in worship the truth of an old phrase and one that I've used before in this series and want to use again. The expulsive power of a new affection. His former love and desire for the shiny trinkets of the wicked, 
his envy of their lifestyle, his, his bitterness from his disappointed dreams, from his sense of unfairness, they don't, have a, a, they don't get any trouble for what they've got, has been replaced. A new affection has driven that stuff out because it's cheap and it's an imitation and it won't last and it won't stand up. And it's been replaced by the love of God and the desire for God. They have come in as the two true treasures. So let the other things go. Let goods and kindreds go. Let this mortal life also, let them go. Because that truth abideth. Reign with him forever. And he ends up in this place where instead of wanting what you have, he wants to give what he's got. The very last line of the, hymn, of the psalm. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Instead of hoarding, instead of wanting someone else's possession, what he wants to, to do is tell. I want to tell you. I want to share this with you. I haven't mentioned Nelson in a while. When Nelson, the big dog, gets something inside of him that he doesn't want inside of him, in his stomach, in his throat, you know what he does, right? He goes out and he voraciously eats grass. Now, Nelson is not a herbivore. He is a carnivore. But you know why he eats grass, right? Because there's something inside of him that he's got to get out. And he knows, through whatever means, that if I eat this, that's coming out. Asaph has done the same. He has examined his soul. He saw what is wrong with his soul. He called it envy. And he saw the bitterness. And he laid out the struggle for us. And he vomits it out in confession. And thus gets out the root of bitterness. It'll eat you up. It'll poison you. Brothers and sisters, don't make peace with bitterness in your soul. Perhaps some of us are more inclined to this than others. I don't know the answer to that. But certainly the potential of bitterness is there for all of us. And when it gets into us, when it takes root, it manifests itself in all sorts of awful ways of anger and contentiousness and disagreeableness with the people who are around you. When the root of bitterness is inside of you, however it got there, it sucks the joy out of you. It takes all of the other nutrients out of your soul. You've got to get it out. You've got to eat the grass that's been offered to you by Asaph. Examine it. Go through the struggle. Work your way through the pain of it. There's no shortcut here. I guess it would be nice of us to think, hey, we just learned the lesson from Asaph, therefore I don't have to go through the struggle of Asaph. That doesn't seem to be the pattern in any of our lives, not mine. Is it yours? 
or you just have to teach this and then you got it. It's the pattern. It's allowing ourselves to engage in a struggle of the faith. Is God really good? Does he really judge the wicked? To be troubled by that and to come out on the other side by his grace as he carries us through in worship. Get the bitterness out for the sake of your heart and your soul, and then we will sing, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you.